Busy weekends are a breeze with American Express Platinum Card. 8 a.m., wait to board plane in the Centurion Lounge. <sighs> Much better. 2 p.m., grab seats for the game. Six p.m. Book an exclusive reservation with Resi Global Dining Access. Right this way. Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to the Centurion Lounge, must-see live events, and exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com/slash-with-amex. Terms apply. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magirite is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I am Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer, Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Hey. Hello, Max. This week on the show is someone who has been on the show before. Her name is Sloane Crosley. She came on in May 2019. And back in May 2019, we talked about her career. She had a kind of unique route for people we've talked to on the show. She started in book publicity and then became an author of books. She worked in book publicity for like many, many years and then became an essayist. She has published multiple collections of essays. She's done lots of profiles, lots of writing in magazines. But the essays, I think, are what she's best known for. She's also written novels and the essays, I'm sure you guys are familiar. They're like funny and charming and vignettes from her life. Uh, That's what we talked about in May 2019. And then a few months after that episode, uh, two things happened for Sloan. The first is that her apartment was robbed. And then a month after that, her best friend died by suicide. And she has a new book. It's out this week. It's called Grief is for People. And it's about those two events. And uh, so I had her back on to talk about the book, which also felt like something new for us on the show a little bit because it's written in the same sort of distinctive style of hers. It's really funny, the book, but it's about a much more serious subject. And I was really quite glad to get a chance to talk to her about it. Glad you did it. This show is brought to you in partnership with Vox Media, who help us make it. Thanks to everyone over Vox. And now here's Max with Sloan Crosley. Hi, Sloan. Hi. How are you? I am pretty good. It's a, it's a lovely day. I'm glad to hear that. You know, it's funny. I said that like, a, how are you? But I actually am wondering after reading the book, like, how are you? <laughs> Yeah, there is a little bit of a concern, especially, I mean, I think that, you know, you write a book about your, your friend's suicide, people are apt to ask that, which, you know, they, they should, I think there, there's a line in the book that I always, um, I think is probably the truest thing I wrote in it, which is that the written word should never be mistaken for the final word. Hmm. So it's an ongoing, you know, recovery process, if such a thing is possible from grief, but I'm okay. I'm good. It fits strange to have a book out that was with you for so long and is then sort of released to the public. But that's true of any book. 
Yeah, there's um, there's a part of me that's like, are you sure you want to talk about it? Ha! Yes, <laughs> okay, I do. Great. I Good. do. Of course, I do. I mean, it would be really, actually, an amazing sort of bit of performance art to agree to do a podcast such as this, <laughs> and then absolutely refuse to talk about the book. Well, yeah, I mean, at this juncture, it would be it would be a, a strange move, sure. But it, it, because of the nature of the book, it is one of these things that, like. I don't know that, you know, if oh, if I saw you on the street, it'd be very awkward to stop you and ask. But like even a, a close friend of mine, it might not be something that I was uh, felt super comfortable asking about. How's your grief? You know? Well, the nature of this specific grief, not that it doesn't have, a, there's not a Venn diagram with all, all manner of grief, but because the lion's share of it has resulted from my friend dying by suicide, I actually think it's all the more important to discuss it. One of the early interviews I had uh, that will remain nameless about this book, um, and I thought, okay, here we go. We're going to talk about this thing, you know, get ready. It's also, no one assigned me this, you know, I made my own bed. So, and the woman's first question, uh, see, we already know her gender, but the woman's first question was, did you ever consider saying he died by a different way other than suicide? Huh. And I thought... I actually laughed out loud because I know that he would have. And I said, well, you know, like a falling piano kind of <laughs> sucks the suspense out of the narrative. <laughs> I think we can agree. <laughs> yes. It's a little less complicated when you're hit by an exploding manhole cover. <laughs> but it doesn't, I mean, it doesn't change the fact that this person is absent from the world and from your world. But it's just sort of, it was so strange. And I, I was like, I'm trying to unpack your question. I'm like, what would you have preferred? Mm. And finally, I got to the idea that she felt that there was the stigma about suicide that I had almost done my friend dirty by even saying how he died. And I, I said, I thought that, I thought that it was the reverse. I thought it was the reverse that, you know, it's important to say how he died. There's, you know, the, not to turn into MSNBC here, but I think the Surgeon General said that mental health was the biggest crisis facing the country or biggest health crisis facing the country. I think last year alone, something like 50,000, you know, rounding up adults died of suicide. Hmm. So this isn't virgin suicides territory. It's, it's a national health crisis. And I think to not talk about it would be the same as not talking about all the other national health crises that we face. So... Yeah, it doesn't bother me to to discuss it. It generally goes unmentioned suicide. Well, in obituaries it does. And then it's a strange thing that you're left to fill in the blanks. But you're left with it for so long that people fill in the blanks when they shouldn't. You know, when I used to work in book publicity, on our phones, the New York Times came up as all ones. I don't know why. That was their mm -hmm. version yeah, of, yeah. of like the blocking ID. their number. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And so it was meant to mask the numbers, but we always knew the New York Times was all ones. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it just had this inverse effect. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And sort of similarly, uh, although a much more morbid version of it, is when an obituary says that someone died young, mm -hmm. but it doesn't state the cause of death, you assume it's suicide. This happened recently to me. A woman I know, it turns out, died in her sleep uh, for diabetes-related complications. But because she was so young, everyone leapt hmm. to suicide. So why not say it? Right. And then were the people around her forced to um, put a lot of energy into dispelling that assumption? Yes. Yeah. yeah. But also what's funny about it is 
the sort of intense sense of relief that everyone felt that this was a tragedy, but was missing a layer of pain for her. Mm -hmm. And I felt that in a funny inverted way, that also says something about how we view suicide, that there's such relief that what, that she didn't do it on purpose, that she wasn't of sound mind and body when this happened, that it happened in her sleep. And I think inadvertently it, it sort of restigmatizes suicide as well, because I think my friend, he wasn't sick in the David Foster Wallace way. He wasn't on a lot of medications, but something was very wrong. And there was a deep sense of self-erasure and he was in a lot of pain, clearly. Hmm. And so I feel like it almost is uh, undermining that pain to suggest that we shouldn't speak of it. Do you think you understand that pain now? Of what he felt? Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, no, no, because it's, it's conjecture. I mean, I think I know him. So it's like anything else in this world. I have a tremendous amount of context clues because it was rather sudden the way it happened. We had dinner a few nights before. I did not know this was happening. And in some ways, I don't think he knew either. I think there is, as I describe in the book, a bit of a flick of the wrist decision combined with the pain. Mm. But when I first found out, in the very first moments I found out, I had this sort of instant forgiveness and understanding of it because I knew... I knew how frustrated he was. I knew how sort of special and unique he was. I knew how much difficulty he was having fitting in with a world that he had sort of built that used to value him that didn't anymore. And all of those things which are sort of almost written in invisible ink when you know somebody and then a tragedy strikes and all of a sudden you can see them. And mm. that doesn't mean you should have, you know, what, chained him to a radiator so he didn't do this. You know, I, I, I think that there's such ego in the way people talk about those left behind by suicide, where I don't have the hubris or the ego to think I could have stopped this perfectly cogent 52-year-old man from ending his own life, you know? So no, there's nothing I could have done. But um, I don't know exactly what was going through his head, no. Yeah, I mean, I think like, maybe that was a way of asking whether that was a, a goal of the book, uh, was to try and understand that better. Yeah, sure. But the goal becomes, you know, it's the questions we asked along the way, right? Like the goal becomes trying to understand it as much as I possibly can, trying to meet him and trying to meet his final act of free will halfway so that you're not just a human shrug emoji and say, oh, that's so sad. You know, you you kind of want, and I think it's also an effort to keep him to keep in conversation with the person who died for as long as possible, which is also a goal of the book. But I think the goal of the book is really, to my mind, is really to actually um, give permission or give credit to all sorts of kinds of grief to people who feel like they shouldn't be grieving. I'm in a strange role. I'm the friend, you know, mm -hmm. I'm not the partner, the sister, the mother. And, you know, all those people are still around. Mm -hmm. So why would I get to write this book? So that was a big struggle is to figure out how to talk about grief in a way that didn't feel selfish, that didn't feel like, oh, this happened just to me, but really to try to get out of that sort of self-pitying mode into curiosity about what he was going through. Yeah. And part of the understanding is understanding what you can't understand. 
Yes, it's the AA credo writ large, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's yeah. also it's also about. I mean, the, I knew the second. Not I didn't know I was going to write about it the second it happened. But what I'm about to say sounds like false modesty, but it is 100 percent true. Which is that an extremely funny person died. A very irreverent, one-liney person died. So the humor in the book functions on this sort of two-cylinder level, do you know, where they're both mm-hmm. firing because it's me and it's Russell. And so it was a frustration also. The Part of the reason of the book is that, you know, I knew him because he was my old boss in book publicity. And I felt like a lot of the book is sort of a tribute to the behind-the-scenes people of all these arts industries mm-hmm. that are uncredited. And what's funny is the culture is perfectly content to agree with what I just said, that yes, there there's whole shows that are dedicated to this, books that are dedicated to this, but they're usually about one step removed, which is the editor. Mm-hmm. You know, the editor or the producer or the, you know, you think of Wonder Boys and the agent coming to like knock on the door and saying, you know, where's the manuscript, which has never happened to me. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, this is about people who have to actually just deal with the egos of all these, these lovely people. That was a long, weird answer. No. <laughs> No, no, no. I feel like uh, it's a topic that um, lends itself to long, weird answers occasionally. Yeah, I mean, it's not, I I don't think of the book as fragmented. I do, however, feel like it exists in this place between sort of perfect, cohesive memoir narrative and piece together narrative nonfiction. So I would never call it essays, but also I felt very self-conscious labeling all five parts as chapters. I felt like a child dressing up <laughs> or like putting together, a, you know, with crayons, like chapter. <laughs> you know? Like it felt sort of silly to me because it does have um, these sort of shifts within it. But Russell's sort of the North Star that, that mm-hmm. runs throughout or the through line. Can you tell me a little bit more about him? Yes. <laughs> so I met Russell. I was working for HarperCollins in publicity and uh, I was poached, which is exciting to, I think it's the only time that's ever happened, <laughs> to go and possibly work for Vintage, which is the paperback arm of, of Knopf. And I did the craziest thing. I met him. I really liked him, but I also really liked my coworkers at, at HarperCollins. So I was hesitant to jump ship. And he offered me the job in today's uh, media landscape, hellish topography. This sounds insane, but um, I asked to come in for a second interview because <laughs> I was <laughs> unsure. By the way, I'm like 24, 25 at this point, you yeah. know, and proficient in precisely nothing. And I thought, okay, I'm going to go in and... Uh, this guy needs to sell me. Yeah. This guy needs to sell me on Knopf Vintage, by the way. <laughs> and he sort of leaned forward and he has this like, or had this you know, he was about five seven, five eight, short cropped hair, from Rhode Island, very French Canadian kind of look, wore these little bow ties. He sort of looked like a doll. And he leaned forward after I asked him all these questions about whether or not I should take the job. And he's like, What the hell do you think you're doing? <laughs> and I said, Excuse me? And he said, It's like you have been admitted to Harvard, but now you need a tour of the bathrooms before you say yes. <laughs> and then he's like, this is ridiculous. Go pick a book off my shelf. Close your eyes, pick a book off my shelf. And, you know, if you don't like it, you don't have to work here. And I said, okay, sounds like a good deal. And I went home and I read the book and it was Heartburn by Nora Ephron. And then <laughs> I worked for Russell for 10 years. Wow. And he was 
the most, I think probably the most generous person I have ever met in my life in the deep sense of the word. If he could do anything for anyone, he would. He loved offbeat characters. Goofy was a big word. It's not mentioned <laughs> in the book, but that is such a, such a Russell word. You know, he never punched down. So if somebody, and, and, you know, if you're working at Knopf and you're working in book publishing, it's pretty easy to do that. There are a lot of people that are sort of banging down the doors, hoping to be in proximity to Philip Roth or Philip Roth. But if if, if a reporter was weird or a, a new author was desperate, he would always um, be like, oh, they're just sort of goofy. Mm-hmm. But uh, if an actual celebrity or actual big author, uh, a name behaved badly, there was uh, no end of epithets for them. But he was just very mischievous and impish and playful. And he never lost that. And um, he also taught me a lot. It was like a sort of free night course or grad school. I mean, he read a disturbing amount for a book publicist, which they all have to read a lot, but they all have to read a lot of what they have to read to promote, Hmm. which is why you want to work for a good house. Otherwise, your brain gets infiltrated by crap. But uh, he, he... I mean, he read all of Trollope. Hmm. You could quote Dickens. He read, he read everything and was sort of insatiable in that way. So I felt like, yeah, it was like a, a free grad school course. And he was also just, um, he loved his friends in such a deep way. He would tease you immediately. Although what's funny is he's one of those people where I would say the things I'm saying now to you about him and then I'd introduce him to somebody and he would be so formal. He'd be so formal. Yes, I'd say this is my friend who makes, you know, I I talk him up, but talk him up on the grounds of very dirty jokes and the most inappropriate thing you could think to say, he would say it. And then he'd just sort of extend his hand really stiffly and say, oh, hello, lovely to meet you. And I'd be like, dance, monkey, dance. (laughs) (laughs) Frustrating. But uh, I really loved him. And I think I, when you have a loss like this and people talk about and they say, I'm sorry for your loss. And again, that's one of these things where you spend the rest of your life realizing what people mean so casually. And it's really, it's not just that the loss, they are missing. So when I do a survey of my friends, it's not like I don't have other friends, but I feel strongly that one of the people who I would tell the worst news or the best news to, you know, those people that exist on Mm. both ends of the spectrum is gone. Mm. And it's very unnerving. And it almost takes me a while to do the math still you know? And that it is irreplaceable. Yes. He's irreplaceable. But I think that's another one where I don't, you know, life will fill in. You know, I think the thing you learn about grief or one of the things I really learned with the book is that it doesn't necessarily dissipate. It's just that things get hectic. You keep going. And the nature of time and space is that it crowds out the loss. It doesn't change in size. It's just the perspective is sort of different around it. So there are people that sort of fill in that spot, mm-hmm. but it's still sort of weird shaped. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if that makes any sense. <laughs> it does make sense. I mean, I think it's a version of irreplaceable, which is like... Yeah. I mean, this is the stuff more I've talked about in like, I mean, I think by the time you write a book about it, things get filtered down to, they sound a lot more pithy and articulate than I sound right now. Um, you're asking me therapy questions and I'm responding in kind with the therapy answers. <laughs> it's really mostly about my father. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, but it's Let's just, talk about it's, 
yeah, let's talk about, let's just, let's bring him in the mix. But no, but I mean, Russell was like a figure and this is why it's also so hard. It's this sort of, um, slippery kind of loss when you would lose a friend because mm -hmm. he was sort of my partner in crime. There were times when he was like my little brother. There were times when he was like my older brother. There were times when he was like my father, my boyfriend, my best friend, you know, and we sort of, in the book, I say, you know, we swapped roles regularly as they do in experimental theater. <laughs> but he was never not yet my default person. And mm -hmm. in a way, when you know someone like that for so long, and I, I, I'm envious of people who have this kind of relationship with their families, but it's, it's this scram, it's this sort of protective shield where no matter what happens to you, you have this person in your corner perpetually. And it's yeah. not to say that I'm alone in the world because he is gone, but I had taken him for granted in that respect. An epic matchup between your two favorite teams and you're at the game getting the most from what it means to be here with American Express. You breeze through the card member entrance, stop by the lounge. Now it's almost tip off and everyone's already on their feet. This is going to be good. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your live sports experience at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. What does the title mean to you? Oh, Grief is for People. Yeah. It's the most unadorned, blunt title, isn't it? <laughs> Um, it's very rare that I have actually used a title that then appears in the text of the book or vice versa. You know, I feel like that happens in short story collections a lot. There's the title story of the collection or even with a lot of narrative essays. In the book, I say it because I am burglarized at the start of the book and am obviously very upset about this and all my jewelry is stolen. And in one night when I, I'm really freaking out about it, I'm like, I wonder if there's sort of a general loss grief group. And as I say in the book, you know, there's, there's no such thing, you know, it's, it's, I'm sorry, your house blew up. It was only a house. I mean, I suppose for pets, there are grief groups, but not really, you know, and then Russell dies. And it's interesting because in some ways I learn that grief is for people, not things. Mm -hmm. And in some ways I never learn it because the jewelry gets folded in, in this way that involves him. And you know, whatever you love is what you love and you miss it. <laughs> but so I think that there's a sense of irony to the title once you read the book. Yeah. It's not just for people. Right. Right. I mean, it also felt to me like it was, um, it was about the people left behind. Yes. Yeah. Grief. I mean, I think that's interesting you say that because it's when someone told me that, you know, the Kubler-Ross stages of grief, which I almost just said Myers-Briggs, <laughs> <laughs> you know, shit you find on the internet. Oh, you know, listen, everyone's going to do grief their own way, you know, or at least there's four exact ways to do grief. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Take a quiz. But um, I 
pluck them out as themes for each part with no small sense of irony about it. So I, I actually don't, I haven't read a huge amount about them. But apparently they were actually meant for the dying person, not for the grieving people around that dying person. Really? Which makes so much more sense if you think about it. <laughs> it sure you know, does. Denial that you're going to die, bargaining that you might not, you know, yeah. depression over the fact that it's coming. Hmm. I mean, anger over the fact of, you know, that you didn't get to do more or whatever it is, or that you're, you're sort of, you know, shafted by mortality. And then acceptance into the arms of the unknown. It makes so much more sense, which I was like, well, no wonder we've debunked the order of this and why for so long, you know, now it's sort of universally agreed that while all these stages do tend to happen to people, that it's really more of a shell game and you never know what's going to spike up when. But the fact that they even had to be debunked <laughs> is sort of amazing. <laughs> like, But people want to control chaos, you know, mm -hmm. and you asked me why I wrote the book and maybe that's a little bit why too. You know, to control the chaos, to get a handle on it. You know, Joan Didion had always said that she writes in order to find out what she thinks. And for all the ways I would love to be like Joan Didion, I think a lot of people would. That's never been one of my ways. I've always sort of had something mostly on lock before I put pen to paper. And this hmm. is the first time I didn't. I feel like I learned a lot from writing the book. What'd you learn? Oh, God. I mean, <laughs> I learned... <laughs> it's I almost I'm gonna sound like almost um like a sort of mafia henchman. That is exactly what I expected you to say. Yeah, 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 of course. <laughs> <laughs> don't ask questions you don't want to know the answers to, <laughs> or that you can't have the answers to. Um, I learned to be less policing about what other people say. You know, my whole life for three books of narrative essays, so much of them, so much of the meat of those essays is about etiquette. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to turn that muscle off, even when you apply it to something as serious and big as, as what happened. You know, and I noticed that when I was talking about the etiquette of the cops, the questions the cops would ask when they came to my house after the night I had been burglarized, and it was easy to sort of poke fun at them for doing things like, you know, at some point, you know, I'm sitting there, every piece of jewelry I've ever inherited and basically the nicest things I own. I don't have anything else. It's not like the jewelry. It's not like Kim Kardashian where the jewelry is just the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> <laughs> it's the whole iceberg. And it was taken out of my house. <laughs> and, you know, one of the cops with his pen gestured down at my desk and he goes, ah, your laptop's still here. I'm like, yes, well done, Perry <laughs> Mason, <laughs> you know, and or like the stuff that they were asking or you know, it's easy to poke fun at that. And then I realized that the the good intent of people who who say ridiculous things to you in, in the wake of a suicide. Hmm. But it didn't bring me closure or catharsis. That's a big word that people use about all sorts of grief memoirs to the point where I actually looked up interviews with, you know, old like Ann Patchett on Terry Gross talking about truth and beauty or Joan Didion or uh, Megan O'Rourke or, you know, I looked up a lot of these interviews to see how much they were asked about it and to see what their answer was. And mm -hmm. I was actually surprised because a lot of them did talk about it being a cathartic experience. And for me, I'm, this has always been true with everything I've ever written, is that I think you take a little sliver of yourself and you offer it up to be sort of spun around in perpetuity in the public imagination. And that is the sacrifice you make. And it makes everything just a little bit worse. <laughs> so it's the opposite of catharsis. Mm. <laughs> but it's sort of, it's worth it. 
it's worth it for what you get in return, you know, a book. But the the offering up made it, in this case, a little bit worse? Yeah. Yeah, because you have to live with it and you have to stew in it in a way. So you get to find out what you think. But as anyone who's written a book knows, you know, that's really, I would imagine, if you leave it at a, at a, a diary entry or an unsent email mm-hmm. or even a short story, that's okay. But if you're editing it again and again and figuring out how the pieces fit for a book that also has to, frankly, entertain people, which I know sounds like a warp thing to say about such a sad book, but I do believe that making someone very depressed is entertaining, <laughs> do you know, to, to elicit emotion, to have yeah, them to connect, yeah. you know, only connect with the material. It's not like you forgot that there was an audience. No, no, there's only one bit that really helped me forget because I knew I needed to forget a little bit. There are a couple of moments actually in the book where I'm speaking directly to him, where the tense changes and the time period changes. And I knew in order to do it effectively, I had to get everybody out of the room. Mm-hmm. And it was just me speaking to to Russell, who still feels, I mean, very much, very much just in the bathroom, hmm. you know, in a lot of ways. Sometimes it's a deep loss and sometimes I feel like he's just late. I think that's true of a lot of people who lose people. Also, I'm starting to hear from people who have lost loved ones to suicide and realizing that I am so happy I wrote this book when I did because I don't think I could do it now. You know, you have to sort of wait. There's some Capote line about waiting until all your tears are dry. And I'm like, eh, you got to, I mean, the tissue's got to be wet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Tears dry, tissue, something. You need a little bit of... um, sort of emotional skin in the game, I think, to write something like this. Not to say that I don't have it now, but I just, there's a vividness to the book that I don't know if I can necessarily recreate now. So I'm happy I wrote it. But when I talk to people whose friends, partners, whoever it is, died 20 years ago, I realize that I'm in like my plebe year mm-hmm. of yeah. this still. This happened in 2019. No, I think that's in the book too. I mean, it, it feels to me like one of the things that you seemed to learn or come to terms with or accept or whatever over the course of it is that grief is this constantly evolving process. It's not linear nor fixed. You don't like reach an end. And it does, I imagine, feel a little bit like a time capsule even in that way. Yes, it does. I mean, but the thing is, the thing is the idea of grief being a sort of ever evolving or shifting creature is, it's so funny. Everything you, I always feel like most of, not everything, but the the lion's share of things that you need to know, you knew the words and the expressions probably in fifth grade, mm-hmm. you know, and then you spend the rest of your life just lining up bullet points, you know, for, <laughs> for, for you can't, you're just racking them up, you know, where it's just like, you can't judge a book by its cover. The only way out is through. And you, then something happens and you're like, well, that sure is true. And then you just <laughs> right. sort of align everything with these cliches. And the trick with tackling a topic like this, that's so big, that is genuinely life and death is, okay, well, how do I do it in a specific way and a unique way where I have something to add to it? And that yeah. always... That's probably the ballsiest part of, of writing about something like this. But there was something about the specificity of both Russell, which I knew was clouded. Ironically, the specificity was clouded by my love for him. You know, I think he's the most special person. So now how do I 
get other people to to do more than take my word for it. Mm. And then also the timing of these events and these sort of concentric circles of grief where I'm burglarized and then Russell dies. And then I have an opportunity to talk about a sort of time period in New York. And then I have an opportunity to do something, a little memoiry and talk about my own childhood. And then COVID hits. I always feel like I need to warn people that there's a COVID section because I feel like they're not going to buy it if they find out that there's hand sanitizer lurking <laughs> somewhere in these pages. <laughs> but it's so brief. <laughs> I mean, I feel like you're laughing about it, so I'm allowed to say it, but it is like, yeah, it's, um, fine. it's like, this is a book about your closest friend committing suicide. Yes. And the like trigger warning is like, there's also COVID stuff. It's also some COVID stuff. <laughs> I mean... Oh man. Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> I think it's cause I know Russell, I know Russell and I think that he is never far away from what I know he would find funny. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I do think that I, I skip over sort of the hinge of the fact of his death. And I have, you know, the friendship I had with him when we were alive and then I have the book and what he would think about the book and the book exists because there was this this sharp divergence one night. Hmm. But I just have so much more real estate that is either the energy of writing about him or him. And so I never feel disrespectful or irreverent or, or weird laughing when I talk about this extremely sad book. Because when I think of him, it's so much more about joy and dark jokes and sort of wildly inappropriate behavior. Mm-hmm. I mean, just to say it, you talk about him just as beautifully as you write about him. Oh, thanks. And there was at some point early on when I was reading the book that I I could no longer resist the urge to like Google him. Yeah, sure. And read about him. How and, did that go? <laughs> well, I'll try not make this like a leading question, but I guess just say what, what I'm actually thinking, which is like the gap between the way that you just described him, the way that you mm -hmm. described him at length in the book and the way that he was written about after he died, which was short and unadorned, I would say. Where did you see? Did you see? Because I think part of the, um, there were like sorry to interrupt, but part of the sort of freak out that all of his friends had was that we couldn't, or we were too, we were just obviously devastated and taken aback. It's a death you don't see coming. Mm-hmm. I mean, it depends. But in our case, it was a death we didn't see coming. And we didn't get him an obituary in the Times and almost darkly joked, like, you got like 12 book publicists and we couldn't play something. This is a joke. <laughs> yeah. But we just yeah. were devastated. <laughs> um, but so I only saw, personally, Publishers Weekly ran what was essentially a sort of slapdash press release that Knopf had put out. I think that's basically what I saw. Okay. Like a, okay. I'm like, what couple, did you see? I would love to no, see it. <laughs> no, it's like a couple different versions of that. It was like a press release. Right. Yeah. Right. It was, right, a, right. It was a press right. release. Okay. That makes sense. And reading that made me wonder how much of your urge to write about him, not just about the loss, but about who he was and what he meant to you and whether that's where that came from on some level, you know? Oh, wow. That's not, uh, <laughs> well, if it's leading, it's leading, uh, it's a leading question straight to the heart of the matter. Um, I, yeah, I like to joke sort of, uh, not that funny, but that Russell didn't get an obituary and I got somewhere around 60,000 words of pissed <laughs> about, <laughs> about this yeah, yeah. fact. Um, 
part of it was the nature of his vocation about feeling like the job itself was unsung. He dedicated his life to something where he was behind the scenes on so many things that people, I think I would be hard pressed to find someone who's, as long as they're literate in this country who hasn't read a book that Russell has worked on, mm-hmm. which is funny. I actually have never put it that way before, but that is, that is true just because of the breadth of all the things he put work into and, and for how long. But I felt there was something so casual about the obituary. I think it mentioned him going to the gym a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also mentioned things that to me were almost cringy. So the job had gotten the pressure internally to get press had not changed and the ability to get that press had changed dramatically. And obviously there were other things going on uh, aside from book publicity in Russell's life, his home life, some things that were internal. There were other factors that contributed to his his death. But if, if this is a sort of macabre, trivial pursuit board, the, one of the triangles is was work. And the obituary that you're talking about mentioned how he ran the Facebook pages or the, or the Wikipedia pages for like every author that he had, you know, for everything. I mean, if you have like gone online and thought like, oh, I wonder if, you know, whether it was Jonathan Lethem or Edgar Allan Poe, you know, <laughs> if that person has a, a social media presence, Russell built it. And the reason why, you know, they bragged about it in the obituary saying how he had sort of increased the sort of social media or something, some sort of social media presence of every author. And I felt a social media, I just never want to see those two words together in an obituary in my entire life of anyone. It just feels <laughs> small and temporary and not speaking mm-hmm. to the stuff of someone's life or humanity in general. <laughs> but also what I saw in that was someone who was manically pouring all his energy into whatever he could pour it into and whatever he still had control of. So I look at that and I see a total loss of control and someone who it's almost like if you interviewed someone who had been in solitary confinement and you said, wow, these, these paintings are so detailed, you know, that you've done in solitary confinement. I'm like, (laughs) I don't know if that's a good thing, you know, yeah. and that's what it, it felt yeah. like to me. So the book is a little bit, I don't know, of a rejoinder. It's it's something to the lack of coverage. Having said that, I'm pretty sure I, you know, the book is such an, a, an emotional piece of work and it's so much about contemporary grief in a larger way that I seriously doubt that if he had had an obituary in the times, it's not like I would have thought, well, I'm all stocked up here. I'm just right, gonna, right, right, right. I'm going to go home. There was a lot more there. <laughs> like, Right. Yeah. But I mean, I, I do think, um, you know, the fact that there's like a PR press release obituary doesn't really change how universal I imagine that feeling is for people who are grieving. Right. Which is just like the missing is so huge. Yeah. The life was so full and well, it also not feels enough like people not, know. Yes. Yeah. That's it. Sorry. Well, I, yeah, you beat me to it. Yeah. Not enough people know there's that, um, God, it's like jury duty. It's like voir dire. You're like, I just want someone to witness, you know? And you also, maybe a little bit of, of writing about this sort of thing is fueled, if not transparently, sort of opaquely by guilt, by feeling... I just wish, not that I could have stopped them, but I wish I could just give them one more thing on Mm. the way out 
you know, just to, to, to give them something, it's not going to help. And that's, I think when you asked before about what the point of the book or what I learned is really about, I hadn't realized how, when you miss someone like that and you're grieving like that, there is a real rejection of the people trying to help you, even if you are playing the role of someone who says thank you for the flowers in the book and wants the coffee and wants to take the walks and wants the company. Hmm. I could feel this sort of danger within myself around the people who are still here, who I love very much, who love me back. I could feel it, and this is in the book as well, this sense of, it was scary. I thought I would throw this person who has come to my neighborhood to take a walk to bring me soup. I would throw them under a bus right now to get my friend back. Hmm. And I'm like, this, I am not to be trusted. <laughs> and so there's this, <laughs> there's this idea that, you know, that the grieving person is weak and they are, but they're also desperate. Hmm. They're really desperate. And it took me a while to become less desperate. And in the book, I, because it's a book, I have the luxury well, I have the luxury of doing what I want, but I also have the luxury of the stages of grief. The five parts are, A, they're mixed up. I think mm -hmm. bargaining and depression are reversed just because it was the order of events. And then instead of acceptance, I just say afterward because, haha, <laughs> it's a book, but also I don't really believe in acceptance. Um, I mean, I believe in the concept of living your life and figuring out how to incorporate, you know, the slightly twisted version of yourself back into the world. And that it will be slightly twisted forever. But I still feel a lot of denial. I feel still very much at stage one of the book. But I think it was important for the book. I went back and listened to uh, the interview that you and I did before we talked. What did uh, I say? <laughs> well, you said a bunch of things. Um, there's something kind of haunting about it because we talked in May of 2019. What? Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> no, Really? Yeah. Sorry, I really, I, wow, what a strange thing this this kind of thing does to your brain. So many things that happened 2018, 2019, I would peg it 2017 and, and before. Sure. It just feels sure. like a, a, a bomb went off or a crater, though, because of Russell's death, that it's hard to even remember stuff that happened within six months prior to it. Mm-hmm. And so that that you're, that's genuine shock. Okay, sorry. So, no, no, no. Talked uh, in 2019, according to you, and probably the internet. It's probably very reliable. Yes. I mean, that's what the internet told me. I'm just going yeah. With the well, internet. but I, it's usually right about this. And, can't fight City Hall. <laughs> but yeah, it was like um, a couple months before Russell died, and the end of that conversation is basically you making a pretty funny and eloquent and spirited defense for writing about small things. <laughs> what kind of small things? Uh, like, I believe the example like that you use little is... Little furniture made of hair? Or... Being in... <laughs> yes, little furniture made of hair. It's, it's actually... We spent... It was the, the episode's like a little over an hour and it's almost all uh, little furniture with hair. I told you um, I didn't remember it. <laughs> Sorry, no, it was, um, it was like um, wanting to give people an okay to be annoyed when someone's hand touches theirs on the subway ah permissive yes it was like yeah. that was some sort of through line for you in your work was yeah. giving meaning and space to these small things that happened to all of us 
Maybe because only small things had happened to me. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I, I think that's true, but I think that it's a little more complicated or a little less of a dichotomy when you write the whole book, right? So there are small moments within grief, which is very big, that I give credence to within the book. Hugely. Like there's a part where um, I have this sort of newish friend who hears about the news and calls and is bottling things. Yeah, Mason Jones. And it's like, it's so loud. Like I, I, the cacophony is the only word for it. It's unbelievable. And I can barely hear her. And I also know she's doing something else. It's almost like if someone called to tell you, you know, how much they loved you and wanted you back. And you could hear like the Super Bowl in the back. <laughs> you know? It was like the death version of that, where I made a couple of comments like, hey, you know, you can call me back some other time if this is a bad time for you, you know. And then finally, I was like, this woman is multitasking a condolence call. And I just hung up. Um, and what's funny about it is like, she meant well, this is a good example of someone who like, was calling to say she was sorry, she was reaching out. No one has to do this. But at the time, like I said, I mean, I was ready to throw people I really loved under the bus. So yeah. uh, someone who I don't know that well is chum in the water, uh, in the waters of So of it was a nice thing to do. And also it was, it nice was like literally, literally on a to-do list. It was, yeah, it was a nice thing to do. It also happens to like share some plot lines with a pretty famous Seinfeld episode, you know, and what, like there's, there's so much about the ridiculousness of grief in here. But it's also when I said before, you know, uh, when we spoke earlier, yes, about, you know, focusing on the small things. I mean, to my mind, I think this book, a lot of people have asked about, oh, it's different. It's a departure. It's sad. It's uh, to me, it's the same, same exact voice, but just with a, a lot more meat on the bone, unfortunately, to chew on. So it's big things. That sounds totally right to me. It didn't feel like some different person was writing. <laughs> it felt like some different thing had happened to the same person. Yes, I'm glad that sort of come through. And I think the texture, therefore, makes it interesting if someone's known to be a comedic writer and then, you know, whoops. <laughs> Again, that... sometimes when I say these things that are uh, borderline disrespectful, it's because I can picture Russell here. And how he would talk about it. So I know his, I know his suicide is not a whoops, but. The, well, the thing it made me wonder was what you will choose to write about going forward. Like, I think you described it earlier when we were talking today, like um, some twisted self. I think that was the phrase that you yeah. used. What is the new sort of twisted self <laughs> going to write about, do you think? Well, I will say that. This is among the things involving the, the death, the book, the promotion of the book, all of it. That is not specific to me is that every, this happens, you get dinged up along the way <laughs> mm -hmm. and then that person writes again and sometimes they're not as good and sometimes they're richer for the experience, you know. I am probably not going to write about grief like this again. I mean, it's not like I don't have experience with it, but I think the idea of what now writing a novel where the, you know, main character is trying to solve a suicide or a burglary. <laughs> Speaking of jewelry, I think we're done with that. You know, I wrote a novel called The Clasp and then my jewelry <laughs> got robbed and I, we're done. We're, we're good. <laughs> but, um, 
I'm sure that things will creep in subconsciously when something like this happens, themes of grief, but I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't foresee it being, I am changed by it. It doesn't mean that I'm just going to be that person who writes about grief a lot. I also feel like I will probably go back to fiction in, in the near future or already have, I'm working on something. And when it comes to incorporating something like this into fiction. For what it's worth, I wasn't necessarily asking like, so grief, that's your thing now? It was- um, The queen of death. <laughs> yeah. It was a little bit more like when we talked, it really was May, 2019, your clarity around what caught your eye and yeah. where your head went for things that you wanted to write about, particularly nonfiction, like the genesis of the essays. Was, it just was really clear, you know? Not only was it clear, you kind of like made a real like a speech on its behalf, you know? And oh, uh, it, it's wow. a much more open-ended question that I'm asking, I think, which is just like, do you have any sense of how that like I has changed? Mm. Oh. I mean, in some ways... And I'm not trying to shoehorn the book in, but it's just what's what's popping into my head is I do touch a little bit on Russell Russell's relationship with his partner. And I say that I always marveled, you know, they would fight a lot. You know, they also loved each other very much, but they would fight a lot. And I I say that I sort of in in awe that they still have the energy or the desire to fight like teenagers. <laughs> like who cares? <laughs> and in a weird way part of becoming a more settled human being is to let more roll off your back and is <laughs> to let, to care a little bit less about the small stuff as it were, hmm. the tiny infractions. But I don't know if that's good for writing. You sort of have to have, if, especially if this is the kind of writing you do, you have to have that eye open all the time. So I think if you're um, a poet or a lyricist or someone who g genuinely writes lyrically, who looks up at a cloud and, and notes how it's the shape of uh, Medusa or a Shakespearean person. I, I, like, I, you know, there's this, this sort of way that you might not have this concern that what you do will atrophy in the same way. I mean, I think everyone does, um, but I think that there's a way that you're not going to stop noticing how beautiful something is. Hmm. And if your way of saying that the thing is beautiful is sincere or earnest and it's not uh, necessarily humorous, I bet there's less of a concern that it's going to fall off. But I feel like when you, the energy it takes really to then take that analogy and make a joke out of it and figure out where the jokes go, I'm not implying it's more effort than other writing, but I think that it's the kind of skill that whatever lane I have chosen potentially has this sort of early atrophying danger hmm. in it. Uh, not because you necessarily become less funny, but because you just don't give as much of a shit. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I don't know. And I don't know. Um, but so I don't feel that. Like, I don't, yeah, I think much to the chagrin of, of all the people who know me, it doesn't seem to be waning anytime soon, <laughs> but it is sort of a fear that I won't, you know, have a, have a remark. Well, the other thing that you said the last time we talked was that um, you felt like the, second essay collection had fewer jokes per square inch than the first <laughs> one and that that made it funnier so maybe you're just talking about like 
uh, you know, fewer jokes per square inch, but they're all funny. But you're less apt, hopefully, hopefully, and hopefully this is true of all listeners, not just writers, <laughs> that you try to please people less when you grow up or as you grow up, or rather you concentrate your desire to do that on a select few hmm. and you increase that and you decrease, it's like, you know, audio levels, <laughs> and you decrease, it's a podcast show, <laughs> and then you decrease how much everybody else needs to hear from you, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so I think that having said that, when you're right, there isn't always this concept of an audience, but I think it's walking that fine line as you mature as a writer between, I'm not going to try to please everybody with this. But also, if you narrow it down too far, then you become like, you know, curmudgeonly almost. Yeah. You know, because you're not really speaking to the human experience. You're only speaking to like your list of complaints. Yeah. But do you think there's a sweet spot there? Like for yeah. for art? I do. I mean, what's so funny is there's a sweet spot for all of this. I just don't know what it is. So I, I know it exists. <laughs> like Bigfoot. <laughs> 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 obviously <laughs> but it's it's like at, at readings you know for the past 15 years people ask when oh you know if they have their own story whether it's you know it could be a divorce it could be uh being roped into being a bridesmaid at a wedding it could be anything they want to know when to start writing about it mm -hmm. how soon after during what if i offend people what if I forget? I want to do it while it's fresh, but I worry that, you know, I'm too biased and it's too heated and it's, you know, all this stuff. And like, there is an answer there. I know there is an answer where it's like, you have to be mostly healed, but not quite. Hmm. But I don't know how you, that's your own personal barometer. I can't tell people when that is. And similarly, like there's sort of a sweet spot in terms of how you write about certain things. I just read uh, the new Gary Indiana piece in Granta yesterday and he talks about aging and it's wonderful. It's beautiful. And it feels so remarkable in its sharpness for someone who is lamenting the fuzziness of things. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a good example where I was like, he has in this moment, I thought, wow, he's really nailed this moment where part of the empathy I feel as a reader is the sort of hyper articulation and beauty of this piece about someone who's claiming to fall apart. Bigfoot. Real. Real. Totally. Loch Ness Monster, also real. Have you ever been to Loch Ness? It makes total sense. I have, and it does. It totally does. Right? Yep. <laughs> I'm like, you're like, this makes sense. Yeah. And it makes sense that that thing is there, and also yeah. maybe you don't even know it when you find it. There's, you know, there's also, there's a, going back to Bigfoot for a second, <laughs> there's, there's just, there is a genuine <laughs> amount of like, there's moments in the book that I try to... I call them like drive-bys. Like I try to tamper them down so nobody thinks I've I've completely lost my mind or become uh, super new age. But moments of coincidence that are sort of overwhelming. I was wearing the same random dress when I got burglarized as when I last saw Russell. Things keep happening on the 27th of every month mm -hmm. at 6 p.m. It's very strange. There are three instances in the book where things happen on the 27th of a month at 6 p.m. There's like weird little stuff. And then I recorded my audiobook the other week and then I had to do pickups, which actually is kind of rare for an audiobook because you've, you know, got it right in front of you, but there was noise, there was studio noise, either voices or like thumping from above the studio. And everywhere where I had to do 
one of the lines, there were like seven of them. They were all from the sections where I'm speaking directly to Russell, which are not particularly long. And I'm not someone who really believes in this, but I find it charming. Let's put it that way. (laughs) Like, how would you keep like disclaiming? No, no, no. It's not like it's not a new age thing. It's it's mostly just like a 27th at 6 p.m. thing that's undeniable. It's it's a kind of thing. (laughs) Well, it's the kind of thing where even in the book, I talk about when you're in the sort of the bargaining phase of grief. I think it's important to say. I'm not a particularly religious person, and neither was Russell. I think I probably have a sharper streak of that uh, with Judaism than he had with Christianity. But at the same time, just yeah, there were just a lot of a lot of strange coincidences that that happened. Well, maybe you know your uh, your Bigfoot moment is just going to be not giving a shit that it, everyone knows that you're so into new agey shit. I'm just so into yeah 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 exactly. Well, when I mean not giving a shit, I mean, I think that there's something where. I guess, I guess what's so strange about this is that, I, this is going to sound insane, but the other three essay collections, whether they come off as self-centered or narcissistic or just I, 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 it doesn't, I mean, it matters, but it doesn't ra- matter in terms of my sort of stance on them, which is to say that I never really thought they were about me. They didn't feel confessional. They didn't feel that intimate. And this does in a strange way, even though it is mostly about Russell, I'm attached at the hip to this topic because it's about our friendship. Mm -hmm. So it's so, there are so many moments that are more revealing about me than any of the other books, Hmm. which uh, is very, in a very narcissistic turn. I can't even remember why I started talking about myself. So there you go. Pretty sure it was because I asked you what's next. About Bigfoot? Yeah. <laughs> You're like, but enough about Bigfoot. What do you think about Bigfoot? <laughs> hey, Sloan, thank you for doing this. Oh, my gosh. Thank you. I hope I was a quarter as articulate now, having been warped by experience as I was in 2019. Maybe even more. Maybe even, Maybe more. even more. Thank you so much for having me. It's a, a real delight. Thanks for listening to Long Form. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor this week was Gabriella Saldivia. Thanks to her. Thanks to Susan Peterson, who handled the show notes. And thanks so much to Sloan Crosley. Her book is called Grief is for People. We'll see you next week. When you're an American Express Platinum Card member, don't be surprised if you say things like, Chef, what course are we on? I've I've lost count. Or, Shoot that, shoot that! And even, Checkout's not until 4, so... Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds 
thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magirite is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Canva. 